Well, it was a sad day in Ontario. We'll stay there today. Hundreds of police officers from across Ontario and uh, right across the country joined the family of 28-year-old uh, OPP Constable Greg Prashala for a funeral service in his hometown of Barrie, Ontario today. Prashala was shot dead in the line of duty December 27th in what police have described as an ambush as he responded to a call about a vehicle in a ditch. Here's Ontario's Lieutenant Governor today. Those who hold the passion to serve, the dedication to lead, and the courage to answer the call. We will remember Greg and this day as a call to each of us, a call to our better selves and our common humanity. There are so many layers to this tragedy. Um, Prashala had served at the provincial legislature before becoming an OPP officer. Um, He just found out that day that he had passed probation after 10 months on the force, or a little more than a year rather, but or a little less than a year, but he had been on a 10-month probation period that he had passed. OPP Commissioner Thomas uh, Karik also paid tribute to Constable Prashala at the funeral service today. I have heard many inspiring stories regarding how Greg was highly respected as a police officer, an accomplished athlete, and simply an extraordinary individual who by his actions inspired others to do and be better. Now, two people have been charged with first-degree murder in his death. One of them is 25-year-old Randall McKenzie, and it's caused a lot of controversy. McKenzie was out on bail, as it turns out, despite charges of assaulting a police officer and illegal possession of a firearm. Um, It also shows, according to court documents, that he initially he'd been denied bail, but was released after a review. He was also, um, there was an arrest warrant out for him because he had failed to show up for a court appearance a few months back. All that added up together uh, had the OPP commissioner, who you just heard from, Ontario's premier, Doug Ford, the federal opposition leader, Pierre Polyev, uh, all demanding that more be done to make sure that potentially dangerous offenders aren't given bail. So is the bail system in this country broken? We've read a lot about it of late. Uh, was this a tragedy that could have been prevented without the, without the benefit of hindsight? Were there mistakes made here? Uh, joining me now to answer those questions is Anthony Dube. He's an emeritus professor of criminology at the University of Toronto and has written extensively about Canada's bail system. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, once again, we find ourselves in a situation where uh, the bail system is being called into question. Obviously, there's reasons for the anger, for the grief here. Um, but again, this there's a lot of fingers being pointed at the bail system. And it's important, I think, sometimes to get a reality check on exactly what the bail system is equipped to do and what it isn't. Um, what do you make of this case? Well, I think it's obviously a very sad case. It's a sad case because somebody ended up being killed. But I think that the question that one has to ask is what really could be done and what, in a sense, went wrong in the bail system. And at this point, I don't think we know what whether anything went wrong in any obvious way. My starting point is that when I look at the bail system, what I see is a system that incarcerates a large number of people without, you know, before they are found guilty. So that across Canada right now, 40% of our prisoners in federal and provincial institutions are awaiting trial. They're, they're not, they have not been found guilty. They're, they are legally innocent. If you look at British Columbia, for example, in British Columbia's 
provincial prisons, 67% of the prisoners are awaiting trial. They are legally innocent. They have not been found guilty. They have not been sentenced. So we don't have a lenient system. We don't have a perfect system, but the perfect system assumes that somehow you could predict what is going to happen when a person is before the court. And we're not good at predicting. I mean, the, the, the decision maker, the judge or justice of the peace who's making these decisions is supposed to be looking primarily at whether the person's gonna show up for court and whether they're likely to commit another serious offense. And you know, a, that's a hard decision because you don't have perfect information. And there, quite frankly, is no perfect information to get at that. So, you know, what we have is an imperfect system. And in this particular case, after a couple of, of hearings, the accused person was released. He apparently didn't show up for court and there's and, and so on. And so there were there were there was an opportunity for the police, if they take if they thought that this was a very serious case, to put resources into apprehending him back when he didn't show up for court after being released. Now, my assumption is the police looked at it and they didn't see anything in particular about him. They would have arrested him if they found him, but they weren't they weren't doing a kind of careful hunt for for him. But, you know, the problem is that, I mean, in this particular case, we have a very unusual case of somebody who killed somebody in the worst of all possible circumstances. When you look at the the fact that there was an appeal, that he the bail was denied originally. Now, this was a, you know, there was a lifetime prohibition from owning firearms for this accused. Um, there was the the assault of a police officer in this case. I mean, these are fairly serious charges. The fact that it had been reconsidered, that it was appealed and that he was released later, that seems to have rankled a lot of people, that people feel like this was an opportunity missed, that if he had been, if it had been decided he should have been kept in custody in the first place, he should have stayed there. It's always easy to see that it's an opportunity that was missed after the fact, after some terrible event like this. My My reading of that is that First of all, you have a di different decision maker, but you also may have different facts. And one of the different the different set of facts would be that it could well be. I mean, I don't know anything about the case, but it could well be that what happened in this particular case between the two hearings is that the accused person put together a plan, which he obviously didn't keep, but put together a plan which looked plausible to the court. So found somebody who was willing to be a surety, was willing to stay in a particular location that maybe he couldn't have you know, identified before. And so the court, looking at this case and looking at the fact that this person is legally innocent and, and in a sense, you know, we, tr we try not to incarcerate people, punish people uh, before they're found guilty. The court says, well, now you have a plan that you didn't have before. So we're going to allow you to implement that plan and, and, and be peaceful in society. Clearly, that didn't work. But then the, the question would be, do we just incarcerate everybody who is charged by the police. In effect, if we did that, what we're doing is saying, well, the police determine punishment in our society. And that's just not the society we live in.
Tell me a bit about Bill C-75, because that's been a target so far, since specifically in this case, but in other cases as well. This was passed by the Trudeau government back in 2019. Uh, the accusation is that it makes bail easier to get. My understanding at the time was it was supposed to try to solve some of the overcrowding problems in our prison system. But, you know, tell me a bit about the impact that Bill C-75 has had in a case such as this one. Well, I think that the attempts for a long time, including that, was to to try to make the bail system understandable and defensible. So that what you do, for example, is you put on conditions in an ordered way. The the conditions are supposed to be there for a particular way. You have reverse onuses, which we have been adding to since the 1970s, where an accused person under certain circumstances has to demonstrate to the court rather than the Crown demonstrating to the court that the accused person has to demonstrate to the court that they should be released. It was an attempt to try to make the system more sensible so that the people who are either not going to show up or are particularly dangerous are going, you know, are are going to be held. And, you know, I I think that, you know, maybe it's too early to tell, but that that wasn't terribly successful, not necessarily because of, you know, facts like the case that we're talking about, but rather because uh, we have not accomplished a more highly tuned selection of the people who uh, we we feel should be, you really need to be incarcerated. So it it may well be that a larger look at the bail system would be a good idea because one of the things it could find out is it, it could find out how many cases there are like the one before us and what kinds of factors maybe are important to take into account in order to avoid real tragedies like the one before us. Uh, what needs to be done now? You mentioned already that in the vast majority of cases, people behind bars are already uh, people who haven't been found guilty of anything. Uh, what could we do to better better tune the system so that something like this potentially couldn't happen again? Or is this just the way it is because we can't jail everybody? Well, I think part of it may be that what we should be doing is focusing our attention on certain more serious kinds of cases. I mean, one of the things that happens is that we have a large number of people who are are being apprehended for an offense, being released on certain kinds of conditions. And those conditions may or may not make a lot of sense. Uh, So that, for example, a condition might well be that they have that a person has to stay in a particular location um, and unless they're being escorted by somebody else. So we're putting resources into apprehending people, enforcing various kinds of conditions. And maybe what we should be doing is focusing the detention of people and the conditions under which they uh, are released, if they are released, on a smaller number of people. I mean, if we have literally thousands of people awaiting trial in custody, maybe those resources, those are very expensive resources. Maybe what we should be doing is taking those resources and using them more effectively. So that in, in, you know, I, I don't know the facts of this particular case and the facts will come out in due course. But, but you know, if, if in a case like this, it was seen from the very beginning that he was a 
very dangerous person. Then what we want to do is to ensure that the appropriate levels of control are put on him. Maybe we didn't do a good job on that one. And maybe the reason is we had a whole bunch of very minor kinds of offenses where this one, in a sense, didn't stand out uh, in the way in which it might have. The other thing to remember, and this is the terrible part of predicting human behavior, is maybe this wasn't predictable. It's a sad thing to say, but human behavior is not 100% predictable. Maybe this was not predictable. Sure, the person had a record that sounded serious, but maybe if you looked at that record, you'd say, all right, there are certain circumstances. We can change those circumstances with the conditions. If we know that those conditions in general work, it doesn't mean that they're always going to work. So we you know, we, we have a problem of not being very focused in our bail system at the moment. I, mean, I, I guess when you look at it, too, just the, you know, we've seen from, you know, the Ottawa's chief of police, I believe we've seen, uh, or at least, a, you know, member of the Ottawa police force, the, the OPP commissioner. There's been a lot of reaction out there, both from politicians and from police. We spoke uh, to the Ontario Police Association on this show. And there's a lot of anger out there. There is this perception that that bail doesn't work. And, and I, you know, as I was saying before the break, you know, perception is reality sometimes. What do you say to those out there who fundamentally believe? that the bail system is flawed, that people who shouldn't be on the streets, such as this person, uh, are out there? I think that the answer to that is we have an imperfect system. We cannot predict perfectly what's going to happen. And we have to accept that so that we have people who are sent to prison for various reasons, whether they're sentenced or on or and, and remand, and are then released and they commit another offense. When they're when they're released from a sentence prison, if they're released at the end of their sentence or at the end of the period of time when we when we can do it, then we say, well that the system did all that it's it could do. But you know, the problem is people commit offenses. And what we have to, to realize is that we want to use our resources in the most effective way, the kinds of things that people are suggesting would increase the, the number of people we have in custody because we'd say, all right, certain kinds of people should not be released. Well, you could easily imagine that there would be certain kinds of people who did certain kinds of offenses who would be very safe to release if they were released under certain kinds of conditions. But if we're going to lock them all up, we're going to be building more prisons and spending more resources. We also know that in the long term, building, putting more people in prison for longer periods of time, especially in the disruptive way in which it occurs in with, with remand, uh, is going to make them worse and make them more likely to commit offenses when they eventually do get out. So, you know, we, we, we have that problem to face as well. Anthony Dube, thank you so much for your time and your perspective on this. I appreciate it. Thank you.